Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Whitney Purdell. She is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Merced. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, I am a sociologist at the University of California, Merced. That's the newest UC university located in the Central Valley of California. Um, at UC Merced, I'm also affiliated in the public health and critical race and ethnic studies departments. Um, and so I sort of walk the line thinking about connections between race, racism, health equity, and another lens of my research focuses on Black feminist sociology more specifically. So thinking about, um, you know, Black feminist thought leaders and what that means for the areas that I'm studying. You wear many hats. I do. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> um, so Dr. Pertle, recently um, you published uh, an essay that I would describe as critically acclaimed um, about COVID-19 health disparities. Um, and you introduced a concept that for many was probably new, but for others, especially in sociology, not so much. And I want to discuss um, that concept, um, racial capitalism, and how it relates to, um, uh, to health disparities. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, thank you. So I did publish an article about racial capitalism, situating it as a fundamental cause of health disparities and using the COVID-19 case, um, and specifically Detroit, Michigan, the racial inequities that we were seeing there to make this point. And so when I would talk about the theory of racial capitalism, I'm really standing on the shoulders of black radical thought traditions, both in the United States and South Africa, who, who were thinking about you know, as the modern world was crystallizing and becoming further developed, we talked a lot about capitalism. And they argued that we couldn't ignore the racist roots of capitalism. So racial capitalism is the idea that racialized exploitation and capital accumulation are mutually constitutive. So I quoted Robinson in the article, Cedric Robinson, who wrote the book, Black Marxism, and laid a lot of the foundations. He says, the development, organization, and expansion of capitalist society pursued essentially racial directions. So too did social ideology. So these, these systems that we know of that have created the foundations of the United States and also the global world system, um, including slavery, colonialism, genocide, are all racial capitalist pursuits. It's the idea that some people are making capital and profits off of the backs of racialized hierarchies. Um, and in Black people in particular have been at the bottom of the hierarchy. And so diminishing the value, dehumanizing Black bodies and Black labor for capitalist pursuits, mainly of the white ruling class has sort of sustained, especially the United States, but we can think about this as a global system as well. And so these are the roots of, you know, the United States. Um, when I talk about when I talk about racial capitalism, especially relative to COVID nineteen, we can just think about this idea of essential labor. So slavery. Who were the essential workers then? No matter what the conditions were. 
yeah, no matter what the conditions were and who was able to profit off of those conditions. You know, um, during slavery, black humans were seen as black bodies and they were precious for pockets and for profits. Um, so they were essential for capital, but their lives were expendable. So as humans, they weren't essentially valued, just their labor was. Mm-hmm. And so I don't make this as explicit in the article, but I, I'm thinking about when we're when we were hearing studies, um, sorry, statistics about COVID nineteen. We were seeing that black, um, especially black Americans, were dying at such heightened rates compared to everyone else. And um, what does that mean? Like, were they the essential workers? You know, they were the ones who often were delivering things, working at checkout counters, working at meat packaging warehouses. And so they were essential to capitalist pursuits, but still expendable. So in my article, I talked about the black bus driver in Detroit who went viral for talking about how he didn't have protections, he didn't have the mass protections, mm-hmm. but he was still forced to, to provide this essential service and, and that he was being exposed to COVID-19. And shortly after he made that video, he did pass away from Mm COVID-19. And so I think, yeah, that theory of racial capitalism is important for just understanding where we are as a society. But what I argue is that it's a fundamental cause of health disparities. Mm -hmm. And the sort of the concept of fundamental cause itself um, is a, my understanding is it comes out of sociology and public health. Can you expound a little bit on that? So fundamental causes, the idea that there are some basic root causes of health disparities is longstanding. But the specific theory of fundamental cause really comes out of two medical sociologists, Bruce Link and Joe Phelan, in 1995, who argued that socioeconomic status is a fundamental cause of disease disparities. Um, So they were looking at socioeconomic economic status, but they outlined the theory that for something to be a fundamental cause of disease, it means it influences multiple disease outcomes. It affects those disease outcomes through multiple risk factors. It also involves access to what they call flexible resources that can be used to minimize the risk and consequences of disease. So um, Mm -hmm. even health knowledge, social connectedness, social networks, those sorts of things. And um, something is a fundamental cause if it's reproduced over time through the continual replacement of intervening mechanisms. And that we know that even though we've had so many technological and medical advances, independent of that, the social gradient and health exists. So even when we didn't have great public sanitation, uh, the most poor had the worst health. And we see that today, even though we might have better public sanitation, the most poor still have the same health. And so they, they were using socioeconomic status to make that case, but they were um, outlining that theory. And then 15 years later, they made a revision that said racism is also a fundamental cause of disease disparities. And I think that, you know, that this shift for medical sociology came on the backs of a lot of uh, black academics specifically who have been talking about how a critical race praxis should inform our study of racial disparities and people who had highlighted how racism, both interdis- um, interpersonal through discrimination, but also institutional and systemic racism impacts health outcomes. 
So then they wrote that racism was also a fundamental cause of disease. But I guess what I was thinking of in what made me write this article about racial capitalism is that I just think there is a tendency to study these two systems independently and I see them working together. And so, yes, we know um, socioeconomic disadvantage is a fundamental cause. We are just now talking about how racism is a fundamental cause, but why don't we think about how those two things are related to each other and think about racial capitalism as a fundamental cause? That makes sense. Um, so now that you're saying this, it makes me think of uh, so the reaction, right, of the public when we started finding out uh, what the landscape of disparities currently look like. So, for instance, um, we started seeing protests um, around the country, people, you know, with signs that say things like, oh, I need a haircut. Um, this interesting shift right, from being okay with the shelter in place to um, switching to saying, well, I need a haircut, uh, or like the shopping mall dweller in Alpharetta, Georgia, like right outside of Atlanta, who is like in the anthropology store, who says, I just want to feel normal. And in juxtaposition with disproportionately Black workers that have to be back at work, you know, in part uh, because of the pressure um, from the public, the pressure from this mostly white conservative movement that the governors ended up succumbing under, right? So I guess my question for you is, what does this concept of racial capitalism mean for the general public? Is this like a, a clear thing, right? Like, do people know that when they're like demanding for society to open back up so they could get, I don't know, their haircut or their massage or whatever it is that they need, that it ultimately sort of subjugates disproportionately black and brown people? Yes, I think so. I think that um, the rush to reopen the economy is, is that's how they were talking about it, the rush to reopen, but reopen the economy. Um, you might think of that as a universal saying, like, oh, we all need to be paid. But think about mm -hmm. who is more likely to be in those precarious work positions that don't have the safety protocols or paid sick leave or who aren't academics like myself who, ha who have to go outside and work. And the rush to reopen the economy um, occurred first in the South where, you know, they have a higher proportion of Black Americans in the South and also working those jobs and also some of the worst healthcare in that area. And so it was this, who is expendable? We can reopen the economy. We can think about, you know, the businesses who are shut down, but let's not think about the workers. And um, a few weeks ago, one of the, a White House advisor said in a speech that our human capital stock is ready to go back to work. And, you know, just thinking about that yeah. term, the enslaved were, were considered human capital stock and they were always forced mm -hmm. to go back to work. And so I think that even when that saying that was racially coded, I believe, and it, it, it definitely provides an illustration of how some folks in power are thinking about those workers, the, the stock who can go and do the dirty work so we can, you know, 
have more money <laughs> through the capitalist system, but it's a racial capitalist system. So I think that it's really relevant to everything that's going on with COVID-19, but a lens to which to see how society, our society is advanced, but it's tied to the foundations of our country. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, on the back end of those protests, obviously we've seen tragically the murders of um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade, George Floyd, that has sort of led to a significant upheaval like none before. And we are basically tired, right? We're tired of racism. We're tired of police brutality. Mm-hmm. We're tired of anti-Blackness specifically. And um, I am wondering, right, a lot of like companies that definitely do profit off of the capital of black folks labor um, have been, you know, releasing these statements um, of support um, in favor of the black lives matter movement. Um, And obviously like Nike working with Jordan to donate like a hundred million dollars towards causes that are supposed to benefit the Black Lives Matter movement or address racism while also being Nike. Like what do all these companies like statements of support um, mean when you think about racial capitalism and health in the long term? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really been fascinating to see corporations engage in these sort of public signaling of support in the face of police brutality and the movement for black lives saying that you know we stand in solidarity or that's sort of the basic level or the next step we're going to pledge money to specific um, organizations but it's interesting that it that like public showing doesn't, it deflects the conversation away from thinking about what that organization and business is, what ways they replicate racial bias within their organizational hierarchy. You know, Nike, for instance, who are the, you know, who is the CEOs and the people who have sort of that bargaining power versus who makes up the majority of the athletes that are helping sell Mm -hmm. the Nike product compared to who are working in sweatshops for Nike. You know, there's a lot of um, people have tried to expose Nike as a corporation for the ways they have exploited workers um, making the product, but also athletes as well. And so that's just an example of an entity that is saying that they support this, but not sort of turning the mirror on themselves to figure out how they replicate it. And that's what a a root cause solution would be that, you know, okay, you're going to give some money to, to organizations or maybe even people who need it, but you're, the entity is still replicating the same inequities. Right. And so, um, you're giving some money into the same problems that you caused. And so, you know, I, I mean, if, if organizations want to give money, fine, but I think that that's, that's why a lot of people have called these 
ironic and um, sort of band-aid fixes because it doesn't address the main issues. It doesn't address the systemic racism or the racial capitalism that helps these companies thrive. Right. Pay some taxes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So now, you know, as a medical student myself, I'm seeing that as well from the medical field, like over 20 medical societies or, you know, professional bodies have released statements like decrying um, uh, police brutality and anti-Black racism. Well, some of them have not even said those words, but, you know, just kind of saying like equality for all. But overall, like, you know, like the medical field is having this kind of like reckoning. um, And I personally am very skeptical of it the same way everybody has been like, are we supposed to believe Nike when they're saying this? In the same way, we've seen just a lot of people, especially white people, uh, and also some non-Black people of color who are having kind of a come-to-Jesus moment about racism. I started med school right after Philando Castile was killed. Like, I feel like police brutality has been like, like a marker of like different periods of my medical education. And I've sat in classrooms with people and I, and I feel very cynical about whether there's actual material change coming after these statements being made both by right. the medical societies or the institutions that I belong to. And so you are an educator as well, right? You teach pre-meds. I started following you a little bit before you released your syllabus. Mm-hmm. I think it's for your medical sociology course. So I'm curious how you see this moment affecting pre-meds, especially as someone that teaches about health disparities and health inequalities to this next generation of people that are on their way to medical school? Yes. Um, I have, uh, you actually reminded me, I have to finish up a letter of recommendation for a former student. Um, (laughs) But I read her personal statement after taking my class and I was blown away because she quoted my class in her application to medical school. And I was like, on the one hand, I was like, yes, this is what I want. I would love to sort of infiltrate the minds of future healthcare providers so they can have an understanding of some of the social determinants of health and root causes. Um, Uh But I was also nervous for her. I was like, I'm not sure how these programs might take this stance, this sort of provocative stance and, um, you know, where she says that healthcare is a human right and that um, she's interested in health equity and that she understands like that her sociology class taught her these things, you know? And so um, it was a moment of reflection for myself as an educator and trying to figure out, you know, what my goals are in these students. I wanted, I would love, I think she's going to make a fantastic doctor. So, you know, I, I, I feel that charge in the classroom that um, if I might have some students who take, you know, our bio or or chem or pre-med majors and they're taking my sociology of health class that I want them to know that I want them to have an understanding of um, of the ways that society might harm particular populations more mm-hmm. than others and what that means for the treatment and what that means for, you know, the biases that they might, they might come up, they might see as in the patient role. But we also discuss, I have a few writings of 
medical students who are black or women in surgery or other students of color and they talk about their own experiences and and we talk about socialization a sociological concept but we use uh, doctoral med medical training to talk about socialization and so i'm just trying to give them the tools that would allow them to make sense of their own mm -hmm. experiences um, but also would allow them to understand um you know the experiences of other folks who they might have you know be charged with treating and so i you know that's a goal for me especially my undergrad classes to really just say like if i have them for one semester what things would i want them to take away if they go mm -hmm. into this career but i also have sociologists in the class public health students you know so i it's it's for everybody but i definitely take that very seriously um and so that's you know those are some of the things that inform my syllabus um but through it all it's definitely a focus on equity because i think that's so important and that sociology allows an understanding of what health equity isn't right given the mm -hmm. evidence but maybe maybe some ideas of what it could be right um, yeah so so yeah that's what i'm doing and especially when i'm teaching undergrads but i think right now you know my sister actually is applying to become a physician's assistant and i helped look at her essays and they had an essay about covid and a special essay about covid but it was more so like how did covid 19 interrupt your plans for applying mm -hmm. and yeah it, it does in a lot of ways we've talked about even virtual interviews that's gonna that could harm people's acceptance but covid 19 does so much more than just impact an individual's writing a, an essay it's right. the fact that we're losing lives right now it's the fact mm -hmm. that people are dealing with anxiety like it's so much bigger and even in the wording of that question it wasn't a space to talk about here is how covid 19 pandemic has made me more excited about becoming a doctor it was like can you list the classes that were interrupted and so oh, i feel wow. like it's just like a missed moment you know to really think mm -hmm. about this this huge health problem as being tied to these larger systemic issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so as you said, your class is obviously open to more than students that are like committed to this pre-med path. And I'm curious, so are they, are, are the ones who are pre-med, are they sort of like self-selecting into your class or is it like the pre-med committee at your university recommends your class yes they are selecting in that's a good point um as i mentioned in the beginning of the podcast i'm at uc merced we're a very new university so we they're they're in the works of creating a medical education of even training doctors but we don't mm -hmm. have that infrastructure yet or that setup and so um being a smaller university students you know are encouraged to take classes outside of their major and i think the the revision to the mcat a few years ago definitely helped um help push students into taking, taking more, more social sciences social science classes yes um my class i don't even think it's a testament to me because the first year i taught it none of the students knew who i was i just got to campus and it was still like over enrolled and so mm -hmm. i just think there's such a hunger for this sort of topic um mm -hmm. that is exciting but yeah we need more people who are able to do this sort of uh 
who can teach these classes that might attract students from STEM and from bio, but put a critical lens to the issues that they're going to be living and working. Yeah, um, I really feel like more of the type of material that you teach should be actually like a prerequisite for medical school in the same way that like chemistry and physics are. Um, because honestly, I mean, I was in pre-med in college and I studied engineering. So I had a very thin preparation when it came to social sciences. I took Econ 101. I went to Howard, so I had to take something in FM studies. And in fact, that was like the best class I took in college. But huh, thank God for Dr. Carr. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I feel like being in medical school, it has been my own learning of like sociology and social psychology and history and anthropology that has kept me afloat and made me feel like, yes, I, this space is where I belong and, and I'm going to have it, you know, an impact on my patients' lives more than the biochem class I took as a graduate student. You know, one of the, um, one of the books I assign in my undergrad class is called The Death Gap by David Ansel. I'm not sure if you're aware of it but he is a physician in Chicago who might have gotten additional training after a few years, but the premise is of the death gap is, you know, he's treating people in the South side of Chicago, seeing these massive disparities, especially in loss of life, right? That black mm -hmm. Americans in Chicago are dying at an, um, a much heightened rate compared to other, other folks in the city. And he talks about how, you know, for instance, the trauma surgeon is trained to, if there's a gunshot wound, to train, to, to address that, you know, physical harm of the violence. But he says after all these years of doing that, he, he understands that the structural harms of violence are much more violent, you know, and that, that, that he feels as a doctor, he has a, a calling to also be engaged in structural violence mm -hmm. and what what sort of collective healing and treatment we can do for that. And I think for, for my students, for instance, you know, a, a sociologist can talk about structural racism or structural violence or racial capitalism. And sometimes people might dismiss it and say, oh, that's your thing. But if you have someone like you in the future or David Ansel, who's like, I'm trained as a medical doctor and I still believe that this is where we need to focus our attention. I mm -hmm. find that the students often buy into that even a bit more. And so, you know, I love these, these, uh, this sort of collaborations that you're doing with this podcast and that others are doing. He cited in that book, The Death Gap, he cites a ton of sociologists. And so mm -hmm. I think that, that, that there needs to be more collaboration and synthesis and team science across the board so we can get buy-in sort of on both sides of the social sciences and the biological sciences to really address health equity. Absolutely. Um, I have one more question. Um, so one of my recent guests, Dr. Rhea Boyd, she's a pediatrician in California. Mm -hmm. um, she had written this piece about basically divesting from whiteness. It was a review um, of Jonathan Metzl's book, um, Dying of Whiteness. Yes. And 
you know, this, her description of this concept of like needing to divest from whiteness and how that intersects with racial capitalism is just so key. And I want to get your thoughts are, uh, on, um, so in this very moment, right? So we have these companies, uh, institution, like professional societies and individuals that, um, for lack of a better word, like have been invested in whiteness, right? And, and basically sort of profit from racial capitalism um in a in, in a material way uh, as a sociologist like what would you if you had like a like a wish list um of things that people can do in their personal lives to divest from whiteness like what would you say that looks like yeah that's a great question i definitely am a fan of dr boyd and um jonathan metzel who both have training sort of across the board so that's a great conversation to be engaged with. Um, I think, yes, what racial capitalism discusses is this idea of racial categories that have been assigned value and that are positioned to hierarchy. And that, that value articulates you know, who in many ways, necropolitics, like who can live and who can die right. because of the vulnerabilities that, or lack of protection or what Lincoln Phelan talk about is unfreedoms, you know, stemming from other black thought traditions, the unfreedoms that these groups have that shape their exposures, their multiple exposures, you know, homelessness, racial residential segregation, bias in healthcare interactions. There's so many different mechanisms that people who have been assigned low value because of racism and white supremacy, they are in, they have these increased exposures and their, their health, you know, their social exposures, their exposures to social ills, but their health exposures too, and they're making us sick. And so figuring out how to reconstruct, you know, our ideals about racial categories and racial value is so important. I think that's what Black Lives Matter is about and why it's a health problem. It's a health equity solution mm -hmm. too. It says that Black Lives Matter. Racial capitalism has taught Black Lives to not matter in the United States. And this is a movement to say, know our humanity. Know that, you know, that killing us is, is tearing us down and we don't deserve to be hunted, to be attacked in our homes, to not be able to breathe. That we need more value to our lives and our lives matter. And everybody should be a part of that, you know, rewriting that ideology to say that black lives matter. And I think that ties into what you're saying, a divestment from whiteness because that is where we have put our investments and we're saying redistribute <laughs> defund these systems that are devaluing our life think about other ways we might value through um funding money into education through youth support groups through community aid efforts through other solutions that say you know that that say in their actions and in their words that black lives matter 
Well, Dr. Pertle, thank you so much um, yeah. for imparting so much knowledge. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the pod. And I look forward to furthering this discussion on Twitter and like maybe even in future episodes. Um, yeah. Yes, totally. Thank you so much for having this podcast and giving me a platform and the opportunity to discuss the various issues that we're facing and ways that we might address them in our roles. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.